0: Thank you to the Academy for this honor of honors. They told me I only have 45 seconds up here, which is 45 seconds more than the Senate gave John Bolton this week. I'm thinking maybe Quentin does a movie about it. In the end, the adults do the right thing.
1: Welcome to episode 24 of How We Win.
2: All over the country, ordinary people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to jump in and make a difference right now.
1: The best antidote to anxiety is what? Action. Action. 2020 is here and we want you to join the party.
2: On today's episode, primary season is officially here. New Hampshire has voted, so is Iowa. (laughs) Iowa. We're three weeks from Super Tuesday, but don't forget, everybody, there are down-ballot races happening, too, and they need your support. Mm. We'll tell you how to take action.
1: Then we're going to hear from Sandra Fluke. She's the activist and attorney that Rush Limbaugh went after a few years back. The same skeevy Rush Limbaugh who was recently given a Presidential Medal of Freedom by Donald Trump. She's got a lot to say about it.
2: I'm Steve Pearson.
1: And I'm Mariah Craven. And
2: And this this is is How We Win. Win.
1: Brad Pitt came out swaying at the Oscars.
2: I did not see that coming. (laughs) Tip of the hat to Mr. Pitt for doing that.
1: Yeah, it was a reminder that just days prior, the Senate chose not to hold Donald Trump accountable for anything. But don't worry, guys. Some of them think he's learned his lesson.
2: Oh, that someone is Susan Collins, who (laughs) who has backed off those comments a little bit and saying, well, maybe I was wrong about that. But I went ahead and, and voted to acquit him Anyway, um,
1: nothing means anything anymore.
2: No, not to these Republicans. I mean, uh, it seems like this all happened a month ago. Um, it's mm-hmm. just it's been so long. It's been really, really hard to watch watch this unfold exactly as we thought it would unfold, but still sure. really depressing to see how uh, awful these Republicans are and that mm-hmm. no one except Mitt Romney, let's give him some props for standing up for the courage of his convictions. Right. And also Doug Jones, too. Mm -hmm. But what's really clear through all this, and I hope is clear for everybody who has been watching this unfold, Mm -hmm. the Republicans aren't just complicit in covering this up for Trump, but they're complicit in covering it up for themselves, too, and whatever roles they have to play in this. It's clear that the Republican Party created the environment in which Donald Trump could become president.
1: Oh, yeah. We also have to ask, what is our country? And Mm. what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do to preserve the values that progressives and Democrats were able to bring in for the last few generations? The day the podcast comes out will be the anniversary of the day that Um, The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. That's right. Yes. And that (laughs) took a lot of community organizing and coalition building and work to get that done. And that's the type of thing that we're fighting to protect.
2: You know, it reminds me of one of the great interviews we did with the amazing representative Karen Bass, um, Mm -hmm. one of our early interviews. And she said that if if we've learned anything from the Trump era, Mm -hmm. it's that we thought at some point that we would do something and then that would become the law of the land. But things can get rolled back. absolutely, And things can get taken away. And, you know, we always need to keep pushing forward with that.
1: You're absolutely right. It's also an important reminder that... Oh, my God, even in our darkest days, when people's rights were actively and violently mm-hmm. um, being taken away or withheld by by the very governments that were put in place to serve the people, it's the people who have the power to make that change. So never forget how far we've come and how far we've fought right. and dig in and fight harder.
2: I just want to say... Really personally, to a lot of my swing left colleagues and uh, all of our you know resistance colleagues, organizers, camp- people who are working on campaigns, volunteers, everyone who's in the trenches who has been living through this last month mm-hmm. and feeling really beat up and demoralized by what's gone down with the impeachment, mm-hmm. inspired also mm-hmm. by the fortitude of Adam Schiff and the impeachment managers. I just want to say I see you I see the work that you're doing. And I feel disheartened. Disheartened, I feel disheartened myself. I remain hopeful. Mm -hmm. What I see on the ground is people Mm -hmm. who are inspired, they're motivated, they're pissed off, they're showing up, they're putting together house parties, they're writing more letters, they're going we just had a a huge group of like a hundred canvassers in Arizona that came you know, most of mm. them came from California, traveled to Arizona to knock on doors there. We're seeing that same thing happen all over the country. So I remain hopeful, not hopeful enough that I'm willing to uh, take a break. Back.
1: <laughs> take a little vacation.
2: No kicking the heels up, but, um, but, but stay focused, you guys. I appreciate every bit of work that every one of you, you have no idea how you inspire me personally. So I want to thank you for all the work you're doing and that you're going to continue to do.
1: That's a great point. And it's a good reminder that whether people are seeing it or not in their communities, there is canvassing going on in every state right now now there is phone banking going on in every state right now there's something to do even if you're not seeing it actions are happening they're waiting for you
2: yes they are they need you Yep. and boy you know usually i i like to watch a little bit of the news right before we record this to kind of see okay what what are the stories that Uh that we need to address and um of course, it's just completely overtaken by the primaries. It's all about the horse race which
1: oh, yeah. it's it, it's hard for us to talk about it cuz this is coming out on Wednesday, the New Hampshire um, first primary in the country is on Tuesday. Will
2: people actually like cast a, a right. vote? Right. Will
1: they go do the democratic thing <laughs> and cast a secret vote? Right. Should we make a prediction about how smoothly New Hampshire will go?
2: I think it's going to go really smoothly. I think so too. I think we're going to know the results early without <laughs> any any problems at all. I will make that prediction <laughs> right now. I'll stand by it.
1: You know, Iowa put everybody on notice. <laughs> I saw an Iowa Democratic Party press conference Is this the one with the
2: sign that fell off? <laughs> the
1: sign fell off the podium. And at some poor point, guy. you just have to think, oh my God, the poor Iowa Democratic Party. Yeah, they're going to have some changes.
2: Yeah. So the primaries are here. We'll see um, who's who's going to edge out who in the horse race, you know, there's some early... Yeah,
1: I I mean, listen, this has felt like a horse marathon, like this has gone on forever. So now, like, February is when stuff starts to happen. I'm so excited that we'll be moving closer to November. Yeah. (laughs) What's given you hope this week, Steve, after that?
2: (gasps) (laughs) Well, I I do have hope for the presidential election. I I like uh, the polls that I'm ignoring, but... Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's important to remember we had big wins, obviously, in 2018, and we won big in 2019, and that includes the Virginia mm-hmm. legislature, where we took the majority yes. in Virginia.
1: Virginia is, is game-changing right now.
2: They're doing so many great things. We yeah. A few weeks ago, they passed the ERA. Mm-hmm. They ratified it for their state. So People
1: rights amendment. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
2: And, um, of course, the Trump administration is saying that the statute of limitation has passed on that. Uh-huh. So they are not taking it up. But all we need to do is put a new administration in there and we could finally pass the ERA.
1: Bam! Bam. Easy. Done. <laughs> and
2: then you would think that Virginia would just, like, kick their feet up and be like, yeah, we passed the ERA. Well
1: done, for Virginia, We're done,
2: but no, they're not done yet.
1: Oh, no, they're not.
2: They ended a Confederate holiday to replace it with a holiday on guess when?
1: Election Day.
2: You got it.
1: Yeah. They <laughs> made go, Election Day
2: a holiday in Virginia to make it easier for people to vote because people work hard and they don't always get the chance to vote.
1: Um, why don't we do that everywhere? HR one. Oh, that's right. The Democrats <laughs> did pass a bill <laughs> they did. that would allow for that, that Mitch McConnell has blocked. Yep.
2: <laughs> the, the best sweeping voting reform bill since the Voting Rights Act, H.R. 1, which is languishing in Mitch McConnell's graveyard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Virginia is showing us what's possible when you vote blue.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Give me a lot of hope. It's really exciting to see that.
1: Well done, Virginia.
2: What about you? What's giving you hope?
1: Um, What's giving me hope right now is a young activist named Nayeli Kobo. Nayeli is familiar to a lot of people here in Los Angeles. She has been a climate change activist and environmental activist since she was about nine years old. Wow. And she's in college now. So she's been at this for a long time. And in fact, the LA Times, I believe this week, called her the California Greta Thunberg before there was a Greta Thunberg. Mm. Um, I met Nayeli when SeaChange, um, the organization that I work with that was founded by Congress Member Karen Bass, hosted a summer youth program. And she was one of our youth leaders who came in ahead of the midterms and got tons of young people in red congressional districts registered to vote. Nayeli is having a health emergency right now. Hmm. She's in the fight for her life, but Nayeli has been fighting for her life all of her life. Hmm. And I have hope for her because she gives so many people hope. Like I said, she's been doing things for the community for a very long time and doing it very successfully. I know the community's going to come through for her, and I know that um, a fighter and a great leader like her is going to be just fine. So I encourage people to look at her work, find out more about her and the causes that she's gotten behind. Her first name is spelled N-A-L-L-E-L-I, Nayeli Kobo. So look at her, get inspired, and do some work.
2: I'm inspired. Thank, Thank you. you for sharing that, Mariah. Thank you. So today for our to-do list, what what do we need people to do, Mariah?
1: So we talked last time about this amazing phone a friend February, where you, our listeners, are exposing your friends and fellow activists to the tools and information that we make available via this podcast.
2: That's right. If everyone phones a friend in February and gets one person, everyone who subscribes gets one person to subscribe, we double our subscribers. But you made a really good point that um, despite how great the alliteration for phone a friend February is. And it is. And it is. Very strong. Mm -hmm. That also texting a friend would maybe even be more effective
1: that's right. <laughs> if you have friends like me who don't answer the phone, <laughs> then maybe a text with a link to the podcast. So they don't even have to they don't have to do anything. That's why you're <laughs> you sitting here with, the with me. They so just have to click the link and it'll take them to the podcast. The point is however you communicate with people, uh get, get one person to subscribe and listen to this podcast
2: yes please Please. we're building a megaphone we've had great responses from people who have shown up to take action because they heard about the podcast and heard about swing left on the podcast so we want more people to do that we need more people listening to do that so help us out
1: what's this about
2: valentine's day e-card valentine's day is friday yay we have some really fun uh valentine's day e-cards that you can find at our store. That's store.swingleft.org. They're really adorable and give the gift of love and uh, save democracy at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's a fun way to uh, to make a donation and bring someone into this community. Also get them involved and um, celebrate Valentine's Day.
1: Well said. Nothing says love like building community. Exactly. Okay. You know who we don't love?
2: Are you speaking of uh, Rush Limbaugh?
1: (sighs) You guys, Rush Limbaugh. Like, okay, I think we could say, you know, best of luck to him and his health. But to applaud anything that this man has done as a professional is bananas. But that's where we are right now.
2: He has done uh, more than most people I can think of to... uh, so hatred and um, mm. and destroy the discourse of our country in the last um, 20 years, I guess.
1: Yeah, um, denigrating Asian people, people with disabilities, black people, women. It's the greatest hits, basically.
2: And women, and specifically women like Sandra Fluke.
1: Today's guest right. has had an epic run-in with him.
2: yes. So she's uh, an amazing activist. When she Mm -hmm. was at Georgetown, Mm -hmm. she was organizing around uh, getting free contraceptives for... um,
1: Getting the school to cover as part of their health insurance. As part of the health
2: insurance. Exactly. Rush Limbaugh came out and called her a slut and a prostitute saying she wanted to get paid to have sex. Mm -hmm. It actually created a Big backlash for Rush Limbaugh. A bunch of advertisers pulled pulled out of his program. Right. He had to um, then apologize, and not sufficiently, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, thrust our friend Sandra Fluke into the national spotlight in a really uncomfortable way. But um, gave her a voice, and she ended up speaking at the Democratic National Convention and being a surrogate for Obama right. and going on to do all the amazing things that she's been doing since then
1: um yeah it it was really cool to talk to her. This is somebody who before i met her in person, I genuinely admired and and looked up to and in awe of what she went through and um continued to to speak out about her beliefs and um and in this interview, people will hear how she came to those beliefs. It was a a well-earned road and and so it's such a great interview but you yeah. talk but you we it recorded the interview a while back
2: a few months ago yeah
1: and you talked to her since uh rush limbaugh was surprised surprisingly <laughs> and surprised <laughs> given the um presidential medal of freedom during the state of the union last week
2: right so you know we recorded a couple months ago and um just wanted to get her thoughts since uh, the State of the Union just happened. So she called in uh, yesterday to update us on what she's doing uh, around healthcare and the great group that she's heading up and her feelings about uh, Rush Limbaugh being awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And here's our interview with Sandra. Thank you, Sandra, for. Calling in. Yeah. I know that I felt horrified and stunned when Trump had Melania give Rush Limbaugh the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It was just a Mm -hmm. grotesque stunt that demeaned the State of the Union and the Medal of Freedom itself. Did you watch that and how did that make you feel?
0: Well, I have to be honest. I was actually at the gym when it first occurred. Um, Better choice. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Self-care, self-care. So I went home immediately, of course, and uh, watched the footage at that point. And yes, I I think I felt, as many Americans did, that this uh, was not uh, an individual who was worthy of that level of honor and that this had uh, cheapened and demeaned uh, the the metal, um especially given some of the incredible past recipients. And I think it was a just a, a slap in the face to many women, given the comments Mr. Limbaugh has made uh, about women, his his misogyny and sexism over the years, but also to people of color. His racism is, of course, widely Uh, known and acknowledged, uh, and to uh, LGBTQ folks, um, many, many Americans, I think, felt deeply uh, offended, disrespected, and um, unseen in having the highest civilian honor conveyed on someone who had done so much to spread division and hatred uh, among our country. Um, It was, it was, a difficult moment for, I think, a lot of us. But given that the president who offered that medal, who awarded it, has spread so much of the similar division and so much of those hateful ideas himself, um, I suppose it's uh, not as stunning as it should be anymore.
2: Yeah. I mean, none of this stuff is, is unsurprising at this point, but it still is stunning to see it unfold. And I I don't have words for it, but uh, you actually do. You wrote a great op-ed in the U.S. Today in response. Uh, why did you write the op-ed? And for people who haven't read it, what was the point that you wanted to make?
0: Yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, it, it took me a minute, but I eventually found the words to respond. Mm. Um, so uh, in USA Today, my piece is in my role as president of Voices for Progress and uh, focuses on the fact that, you know, obviously Mr. Limbaugh is suffering some really serious health concerns right now, and I, I certainly uh, wish him well in that fight against his cancer. And I really am glad that it sounds like he has access to the types of health care he needs. Uh, but what concerns me is that he and President Trump, uh, as well as the Republican Senate in particular, have stood in the way of affordable access to comprehensive health care for so many other Americans. And uh, just like back in 2012, I wasn't going to allow this kind of elevation of Mr. Limbaugh to silence me. I was going to use this moment to speak out uh, about uh, what health care uh, is needed by so many American women and Americans uh, of all types. And in that very same speech at the State of the Union, uh, President Trump, he's talking about uh, the need to protect access to health care. Uh, the Republican Senate is standing in the way of uh, a bill, H.R. 3, that has been put right. forward by the Democratic House uh, to make sure that prescription drug costs are addressed in this country. And so, I think it's really important that Americans understand that, yes, the White House is critical in November. But when we're talking about how do we get affordable, comprehensive health care for all of our fellow Americans, the Senate is critical because (laughs) Mitch McConnell is standing in the way. We've all heard about his legislative graveyard but what is not talked about enough is that he is sending Americans to the graveyard. It's unconscionable, and it's the kind of thing we've got to take action on in November at the, at the ballot box. You can
2: tell I get a little fired up. <laughs> well, you're, <showing> <laughs> you're, you're so right. I mean, uh, and and for people who didn't see the State of the Union, there was a point when uh, Trump did say that he was you know, wanted to work with anybody he could to lower prescription <laughs> drug prices. And our Democratic Congress people um, started chanting H.R. 3 because we actually have a right. great bill on Mitch McConnell's desk and um so thank you for bringing that up. That is we are yep, very focused a, on the Senate.
0: <laughs> it is a put up or shut up moment for Republicans in the Senate and I uh, I suspect they're going to do neither. So we're going to have to put up in November in order to shut them up.
2: That's right. One last thing I just want to ask you about. Ironically, you know, we recorded a couple months ago and we talked about Uh, When you were speaking at the Democratic National Convention, you were highlighting the Republicans' archaic and harmful policies, especially around women. Mitt Romney was running for president, and now Mm -hmm. Romney has been the one Republican to vote for Trump's removal. And, Mm -hmm. And also another very harsh critic of yours at the time, former Tea Party congressman Joe Walsh, was running against Trump, has now suspended his campaign, but has said that he will support whatever Democrat is running against him. Joe Walsh is going to vote blue no matter who. How are you looking at these people now? I mean, I don't even know really what my question is. It's just what bizarre world are we living in? That's my question.
0: Well, I I will say in my personal capacity, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Senator Romney's vote. I I know that that took courage. I know that Senator Jones, uh, Doug Jones' vote also took
2: courage. Mm -hmm.
0: And I I just have a tremendous amount of respect for for folks who are willing to do the right thing, even when there are personal consequences. Um, You know, in in contrast to 2012, I think it just speaks to how far we've come. Um, And it's not in the right direction uh, that President Trump is so so much worse on issues of respect for women uh, than Senator Romney was when he was a candidate. And that doesn't uh, doesn't excuse either, uh, but it certainly points to the, the work we have to do in this country and why this election is so important.
2: I agree. Well, thank you, Sandra, for calling in and giving some current context to what is a great interview. I'm excited for everyone to hear it.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you to my colleagues at Voices for Progress who uh, helped to put together that op-ed you were referencing and to all the members of Voices for Progress, business owners, entrepreneurs, philanthropists, other prominent folks who stand up and fight for things like affordable health care every single day.
2: Excellent. We'll, we'll put a link to, uh, is it VoicesForProgress.org?
1: That it is.
2: Okay, we'll, we'll make sure that's up on our site as well.
1: We're living through a historic moment in constitutional history. Almost 100 years after the Equal Rights Amendment was first introduced, rumblings about the ERA are back. But what is it? Why has it taken so long? And why should we even care? Wonder Media Network presents a new podcast called Ordinary Equality. Hosted by human rights attorney Kate Kelly, this show explores the amendment's rich history to tell the story from every angle, past, present, and future. Kate Kelly's personal experience brings a rare perspective. Raised in the Mormon church, she fought for women's equality within the church before being excommunicated in 2014. In this 12-part series, Kate grapples with her history with the ERA to connect with the bigger picture. She uses her knowledge as a human rights lawyer and activist to tell the story of a landmark amendment that passed, failed, and has been resurrected once again. As Alice Paul, author of the ERA said... Most reforms, most problems are complicated. But to me, there's nothing complicated about ordinary equality. Subscribe to Ordinary Equality wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Sandra Fluke, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Absolutely. You're, you're really known as an advocate for women's rights. As someone who also stepped forward to make their voice heard on really important issues that at the time we weren't hearing enough about,
3: mm-hmm.
2: we still aren't, but what first propelled you into action?
3: Well, uh, you know, my time doing advocacy started a long time before that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that particular incident, um, I was a law student at Georgetown and um You know, I think this is one of the things that gets lost uh, always in these stories is that it's not just one person. There were a whole group of us who were students who were organizing together, and there were professors and staff who were working with us. And we all recognized that there was a problem on our campus Mm -hmm. uh, around insurance coverage and whether or not the the female students on campus had access to the types of health care that they needed, uh, particularly birth control in this uh, this case, and we were organizing around um, real situations we were seeing in our, our friends lives and our own lives, and we did some surveys and found that there were significant concerns for the students on campus, both economic concerns when they couldn 't pay for it themselves and uh, right. the insurance didn 't cover it as well as some medical consequences, and um, you know some real emotional uh, impacts of the, that type of thing as well.
2: And you mentioned that wasn't where you started. Where, where did you start? What was the first thing that you did?
3: Um, let's see. Well, you know.
2: Let's go way back. <laughs> let's go <laughs> way back.
3: Um, you know, I suppose in some ways it's a, a pretty uh, – Unoriginal story of getting involved in activism in college, and I grew up in a really conservative area. Uh, there were some things that I saw growing Is that up there, Pennsylvania. Yes, right. that's right, yeah. rural Pennsylvania. Um, I, there were some things I saw growing up there that bothered me, and that I, you know, spoke out about at the time. But uh, I really wouldn't say that. Um, I became active and involved and really found the the language and the understanding for why certain things bothered me and why they made me uncomfortable and -hmm. and why I felt that they should change until I got to college and uh, had some formative experiences there.
1: Was there something about that advocacy and activism work that surprised you or that was unexpected?
3: I think for me, it was a moment of... A lot of discovering a new way of looking at the world and a new political philosophy in the like lowercase p kind of sense of the word. Okay. So when I arrived on campus, I was a pretty conser- had a pretty conservative viewpoint. Um, I actually was anti-choice uh, prior to um, actually I was anti- I, my views were anti-choice till part way through college. Okay. Um, I. Had a, a number of more conservative views about things like affirmative action or um, uh, gender equality, just a number of different issues. And my very first semester of college, I dropped one of my recommended classes and took an introduction to women's studies instead. Okay. And uh, I think I did that for two reasons. One was that I didn't want to have class on Friday. And so this, <laughs> this fit into the, the schedule well. Um, and the second was that I had this, this interest in the topic, and it had been something that I'd had a lot of conversations about uh, up until that point. But I also had this belief that, you know, I am this strong, independent woman. I can do anything I set my mind to. What is this philosophy that says that I have barriers mm. um, that I'm facing? I'm not feeling barriers, right? And I can do it. And, and, you know, this is a, a very, this is a mindset that doesn't take into account my privilege as mm-hmm. an educated white woman, for example. But uh, that first class where I started thinking more about intersectional feminism and uh, about gender equality uh, in a whole range of ways was very eye-opening and uh, really formative for me and really set me on a different path.
2: So what about working on campaigns? Mm -hmm. What what was your first experience uh, working on a campaign?
3: Well, that came a little bit later for me, actually. Um, I guess it wasn't actually until the Rush Limbaugh stuff broke wide open and uh, I was asked to be a surrogate for the president that I got involved in uh, the electoral side of politics, which isn't Interesting place to start your uh-huh. electoral involvement, right? Um, I would say so, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. just
2: kind of like right away, I'm gonna speak at the Democratic right. National Convention.
3: Uh, yeah, well, they have to ask you. You're not allowed to just tell them. But <laughs> well, yes. no, but I mean, after they
2: asked you, like, okay, yeah. this is my entrance into. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. said little p politics before. I guess that's pretty big p politics. Yeah,
3: it was. Um, it was a pretty. <laughs> that sounded bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, it was a pretty, uh, pretty. Surreal uh, few months there in a a pretty unusual trajectory. But um, they did give me sort of like a a tryout shot at a – I introduced the president at a rally in Colorado. Mm -hmm. So, again, Mm -hmm. not a real ease-in kind of approach, but I I suppose they uh, wanted to see if I would fall apart at least once before they put me on the DNC
2: stage. (laughs) And you stepped up, of course.
1: (laughs) I I gave it a shot. Um, You also ran for office yourself, um, Mm -hmm. running for state senate uh, in Los Angeles against another Democrat crap. And Alan, what was that experience like? And what did it teach you about organizing?
3: It's actually a piece of advice that I give to a lot of, mostly women ask me about running for office, but anyone who's considering running for office is volunteer on campaigns. You don't necessarily have to be staff, but volunteer on campaigns. Try to understand all of that working uh, of the the different expertise, the different areas, different mechanisms, because it's a it's a really intimidating and deep experience when you're the candidate and it's mm-hmm. your political future on the line and you have to make calls um, about what's the right direction to go or not. And you have a lot of strategists to listen to, but um, a lot of these are, uh, you know, not necessarily right or wrong answer questions. They are um, gut mm-hmm. response and what kind, of, uh, what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of candidate do you want to be? And um, having that background of watching some other people closely can be really helpful. But your question was just what was it like to run, right? What was it like to run and what did you learn? What did I learn in that yeah. process? Yeah. Um, I think I I saw firsthand what many of us know, which is how much our political system relies on money mm-hmm. and how oriented toward fundraising candidates have to be in order to be successful and, and how that Um, isolates candidates in who they get to talk to and and what perspectives they get to have and are here. And for me, I was running a really grassroots campaign, had a pretty low average uh, contribution and did a lot of that type of fundraising. But uh, even my campaign, it it felt like as the candidate, your focus is so much on the fundraising. Mm -hmm. And that's... um, you know, just a significant problem and something that has animated a lot of my policy and advocacy work since then around getting money out of politics, for sure.
1: Well, that's the the perfect follow-up, which is you didn't win this race, but you didn't stop doing the work.
2: No.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, because, you know— you, if if folks think you're in it for the glory when you're running for state senate, I think that seems, <laughs> you know, like. But we do re-evaluate see. Reevaluate here.
2: But to your credit, though, we do oh, see um, plenty of candidates who run and uh, fall short, and then just disappear or go back to their law practice yeah. or whatever. And you're still like in it, really involved, doing all this stuff. So. Well,
3: uh, thank you. I I do think um, you know being a candidate is just. It's a really intense and very difficult experience. It takes a real toll on you. Your your personal you just health and well-being i mean i was a mess at the end of that campaign Mm. i had worked myself nearly to death there was a point in that campaign where i was a size two and you know that it's not right (laughs) so (laughs) um it was a really tough experience and i think it Mm. is for a lot of candidates and you know the way i look at it is um, and i've said this to many folks but um, just do the work and don't worry about what your job title is So whether you win the campaign or not, Mm -hmm. I I expect you would be working on all the same issues that you were talking about during your campaign because it's what was important to you, right? Yeah. So you find a different way to do it.
1: Given how hard you just described (laughs) campaign life, is it something that you would ever do again?
3: Oh, well, thank you for asking, and thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about the other side of of campaigns, (laughs) which is that there are things about them that are marvelous. Yeah. So um, you know, I think any of us can relate to being part of a team and working toward a goal, something you're passionate about. And I have just the deepest love and respect, and I'm not an especially... uh, I don't usually talk about, like, love for people. But from um, <laughs> the volunteers and the people who supported me in that campaign, mm-hmm. uh, that means the world to me. And so it's amazing to be part of that kind of community that's working together um, and achieving those benchmarks uh, along the way. See, that sounds much more like me, benchmarks. That you love, you now <laughs> benchmarks, yes.
2: But there's a lot of love in this room, so it's just— and I love it. my benchmarks. So
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very data-driven person. Um, but to not entirely dodge your actual— question, um, <laughs> right. which, I, which I could do. I just want to be clear. The was, skill is thinking, there. I was
1: thinking, do I push? Because she hasn't answered the uh, question No, that's yet. fine. Uh-huh. Um, and
3: I think, it's, I think it's really important to ask candidates who have not been successful to run again and yeah. to ask women and people of color, LGBTQ folks, so I will honor that by answering your question. <laughs> um, you know, if, if there's the right opportunity, I would um, be honored to have that opportunity. Again, and to uh, try to fight for all the things that I, I still believe in, still prioritize, and we mm-hmm. still need to make a lot more progress on.
1: Well, thank you for, for answering the mm-hmm. question. Yeah, okay. for it was, not it dodging one. One. And, <laughs> and I'll say, like, the way that you described um, being a candidate is so lovely. And I would also add that you can get some of that feeling from working on a campaign, oh, volunteering yes. It's not just a being campaign. a candidate. It's, it's being part of it in it's whatever way. a pretty way. incredible experience and
3: community. Yeah. Yeah. in community. In fact, being part of that team and not asking people for money or being publicly <laughs> shamed seems like a pretty good formula. That's, that's the thing.
2: Not asking <laughs> so, people for money yeah, would be yeah. great. And, um, I mean, we could go down a wormhole talking about money in politics, which we, we should sometime. We but, could. You know, so – when you did speak at the convention in 2012, you spoke about how different futures awaited women. Um, and by the way, if you haven't heard, <laughs> now spe-
3: we're in the dystopian <laughs> one. Yeah, <laughs> but go you ahead. Don't.
2: You just stole my line. I literally <laughs> wrote that down on here on the question. And I mean, if, <laughs> sorry, for, sorry. no, no, I'm glad you did because it's just what it is. And by the way, if you haven't heard uh, Sandra's speech, look it up on YouTube. It really is a, a great yeah. speech at the convention. Oh, thank you. You compared our vision, the Democrats' with the Republicans' vision. Your quote was an offensive, obsolete relic of our past. Mm. You were talking about the Mitt Romney-Paul Ryan ticket.
3: Who feels like a smurf at right. this point. I mean, <laughs> right. like this is uh, – yeah, it's really – I I look back and um, you know, I have a, a number of feelings which are that – uh, I think what we were talking about at that time, the the threats, the concerns were real and were serious, and it's just heartbreaking how much worse things are now, yeah. that we now have, you know, what Mitt Romney said during that campaign when he was told about uh, Rush Limbaugh's comments about me and, and really many American women, he said, well, those weren't the words I would have used, which mm. I think I do not think is an adequate response, no. No. but we should all, like, Quietly to ourselves, imagine what President Trump would have said. Because we're talking about, you know, President Trump has sexually assaulted women. And he would have
2: retweeted Rush Limbaugh. And <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's
3: just, it's just on a completely different scale. Mm-hmm. And you know, obviously, that's not just for women. That's for people of color, LGBTQ folks, the immigrant community. So many folks are just horrifically offended and insulted by the President on a daily basis. And that's really it, it's really disappointing that this is the place we're in, but I think it has to galvanize all of our action toward the next election and um, all of our engagement going forward.
2: Yeah, and that's that's where I was going to go with it too because it's just um, you know you've got Paul Ryan who spinelessly um, didn't stand up to him and now is gone and you have mit- I do
3: you think we should give Paul Ryan credit for he had a good a couple good attempts? He
2: there, had a couple of good a lot attempts. There were
3: Republicans who never tried at all and he, Ryan had a couple of attempts there. I mean ultimately no, he did not, okay. but there were a couple attempts.
1: Do you, do you think that did you expect that Joe Walsh right would <laughs> right would be weirdly heroic to like that's not the right word but yeah. he's, he's
2: he was trying so to take a stand critical yeah. of you specifically yeah. and now few, he, we had a few <laughs>
3: uh, exchanged some words yeah um i mean i th- <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is welcome to the moral side of the fight at whatever time they arrive. Yeah. Oh, so that's <laughs> so generous. That <laughs> Thank is <you>. fair. <laughs>
2: that is fair. All right. So we know we have a lot of work to do mm-hmm. still. And that's the work that you're doing right now. So what have you been working on in the wake of this election since Trump has been elected um, yeah. to fight for – continue your fight for women yeah. and equity and, and everything?
3: Um, a few of the things that I've been personally participating in are that I'm doing some pro bono representation of some immigrant clients. Um, some special immigrant juvenile status cases, trying to assist some folks uh, who are in, in vulnerable positions. I recently traveled down to the border with Equality California to help shine a light on the conditions there. For asylum seekers coming from uh, South American countries who, especially within the LGBTQ community, but any community, there's some really serious asylum claims, folks who are afraid for their lives, who are mm-hmm. unable to access that legally guaranteed program because of the, the changes that the Trump administration has made. So I think a lot of us have been trying to speak out and and do what we can around uh, those immigration efforts, whether it's, you know, contributing supplies and everything else that, that we can do. And uh, a lot of folks are actually running for office. Mm-hmm. So I'm also on the board of Emerge California, where we train Democratic women to run for local office. Yeah. So there's just, there's a lot to do. Right. So And we need lots yeah. of people to help do that's all right, those that's things. That's right. And there is a place for everyone. No yeah. matter what it is they're bringing or what they can contribute, there are lots of lots of places to fit in.
1: Absolutely, I kind of <laughs> want to talk about the exp- like we've kind of tiptoed around it a little bit. The experience that you had mm-hmm. when you spoke to Congress mm-hmm. to get uh, access to. Coverage for birth control mm-hmm. um, at Georgetown, and um, you're attacked by Rush Limbaugh because of that. Yeah. We talk a lot about encouraging people to tell their stories and put themselves out there. Um, you weren't even telling your story; you were telling other people's stories. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you were still attacked. Yeah. Um, how you kind of lived every every woman's nightmare about running for office and mm. and, and being on that. How um, do you advise women to prepare for that now? Yeah,
3: thank you for for asking about that. I and I'll return to the core of your question, but um, when I think about the struggle for reproductive justice in this country, I think one of the things that is a significant barrier that's holding us back is that too many people, when they think about things like abortion rights, mm-hmm. they think about the stereotypes, mm-hmm. right? You know, regardless of what you think that stereotype is, you know, the person who uses abortion as birth control or the, the person who just isn't responsible and makes these decisions casually or, you know, whatever that stereotype is. That- which is not accurate, right? right? You know, most most people who get abortions in this country are married women, right? It's mm-hmm. um, There's so many medical and just tragic situations. And the fact that none of us talk about that, like when that happens in our own lives, mm-hmm. I think that allows the stereotypes to be front and center. Mm. And so I think about uh, the LGBTQ community and the political act of coming out mm. and that there was a full movement of we're going to come out. And that is what at least a big part of what I believe has changed this country when it comes to LGBTQ uh, equality. Mm-hmm. We still have a long way to go, But when people started to have friends and family members who they knew, who were gay or trans or bi, that was what changed things. And I think on reproductive justice, When folks start to understand that the people they're demonizing are their sisters, their mothers, their daughters, their wives, Mm -hmm. that will change the conversation on that element as well. But I I bring this up because I do not think we can underestimate the value of being public in that way. However, when I urge folks to think about that for themselves and think about sharing their own experiences and their own stories – you absolutely have to do it in a way that keeps you safe, mm-hmm. keeps you emotionally safe and physically safe, because unfortunately, we live in a time when there is actual violence around these mm-hmm. issues, as well as the emotional damage that can be done of uh, revealing a very sensitive and deep and painful part of yourself and not being met with a, a mature response. Mm-hmm. So, find the space. Uh, where you can do it in a way that takes care of you. But I do think it is vital and important, and I salute the women who have shared not other people's stories as I did, but their own, um, and stepped forward. I have um, you know, folks close to me who have done that who I respect enormously. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, I do think that one of the challenges we have as women in this country is that we make too large what it would mean to be publicly insulted or slut shamed or these kinds of tactics—they're mm-hmm. awful—and it gives me a, a real insight into the. You know, one of the things that that many people came to me and said was, you know, this is what happened in my workplace. Someone said this to me. And right. and I think it really connects to the Me Too movement and the sexual harassment that a lot of women experience, a lot of other folks sure. experience as well. So yes, this is real, this is painful, and we are stronger than this. Mm-hmm. So it not to diminish it, not to make it less, but to give ourselves full credit for what we can handle, what we can take on, what we can face up against, and keep going. And that that is what strong leadership looks like. Mm. And we're all going to play different roles in this movement. And not everyone is going to be an elected official or going to be in that spotlight. But I hear way too many people tell women in particular, tell me they couldn't possibly do that. They couldn't possibly do what I did. And I just, you know, I I appreciate very much the intended compliment. But yes, they could. Yes, they could do it. I see a lot of strong women in the courtroom, in the boardroom, do incredible things in their careers, stand up in incredible ways for their families. And this kind of juvenile, immature crap is nothing compared to to what women can accomplish. And I think uh, a lot of us have to be really confident and strong in how we approach that because if they're trying to silence us, if they're trying to take us down, if they're trying to say that we can't have a seat in the government of our country, they should be coming at with us with stuff that is a lot stronger than this crap hmm. because this is not enough to silence us. And so I I just encourage folks to, to take that seriously, but I also uh, want to acknowledge that I wasn't exactly given a choice, right? right? (laughs) Like it just sort of happened to me and I was like, okay, well, I'm in this moment and I'm going to have to respond to it. So I know it's a different thing for women to step forward into that, but I encourage them to do that because I can tell you from the other side of it, you will be fine and, you know, you can handle this. But I also acknowledge my privilege in that statement that, you know, i uh, I am a white woman. I was then too. Um, and uh, when that happened to me in the public spotlight, a lot of Americans responded like I was the girl next door. and I watched when uh, there were some women who came forward and accused President Trump of things. Mm-hmm. They were not treated like the white woman next door. Their histories were rifled through, and there was you know much more painful things said about them. And so you know, we all have to find the place in the movement, the role that's right for us. We have to take care of ourselves. And I encourage us, as we're figuring that out, to be brave in that moment and to give ourselves credit for how strong we are and how much we can handle. I haven't thought about this a lot. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I know, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about Rush Limbaugh slut-shaming Crystal Ball. Yeah. And the idea that like that we're not— Oh, you not, mean he
2: didn't learn <laughs> right, yeah. from his not, yeah. experience? They're
1: not going to change, so we can't— and hold I, ourselves Crystal back Ball was that. someone who
3: I don't remember. I think she reached out to me, but I was in touch with her during that time when I was going through this. Mm-hmm. She was a great support to me, had a lot of good advice for me. And, you know, Rush Limbaugh can't handle Crystal Ball. So, <laughs> you know, good luck, sir. But.
2: I think the last question I want to ask you is, what gives you the most hope for the future?
3: Um, the, the grassroots volunteers, without question. The people on the street corners with the signs, uh, the people making phone calls, sending text messages, knocking on doors, they give me incredible hope because they make the difference in every single one of these fights. Mm-hmm. And uh, we forget. What a difference uh, has been made by those kinds of efforts, and how just how uh, immense that impact can be. When when we talk about the the 2018 elections, I think you know some folks felt like, oh, Beto didn't win, and Stacey Abrams didn't win. You guys, the House oh, my God, those were the districts that for how many cycles, for, you know, almost 10 years, it had been just described as a mathematical uncertainty. I once had a reporter in, I think, the 2014 cycle ask me if Democrats were going to take back the House, and I laughed and said, no, actually, I can do math, okay, <laughs> which was not my best moment. I ended up having to, like, do cleanup, um, lest I offend uh, Leader Pelosi at the time. But those were just districts that were written off as impossible. And we took so many of them. I mean, look what was accomplished by that energy. And so that energy coming into 2020 gives me a lot of hope. It has to be sustained energy. It has to be strategic energy. We have to keep going. But it is up to us whether it's going to happen or not, because that is the difference maker, period.
2: Awesome. Let's leave it there. That's the that's the point. Sandra, thank you so much for being here and sharing, you for sharing your story. Me. Yeah. 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 It's really great.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for joining us today and thanks for stepping up and taking action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved and our work has to start now.
2: Who would you like to hear on the show? What topics do you want to discuss? Let us know by emailing us at podcast at swingleft.org or call 347-WIN-2020 and we may play your message on our show.
1: Can't be your phone a friend February though. You gotta phone someone else
2: too. <laughs> Three four seven win twenty twenty.
1: Thanks to everyone who subscribed, rated, and given nice reviews. They've all been
2: nice. It's great.
1: <laughs> if you haven't yet, please subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share on social media and use the hashtag #HowWeWin2020. Check out our page at swingleft.org/podcast, and of course, sign up to volunteer.
2: We appreciate you so much for being here with us and are excited to bring you more from the field next Wednesday.
1: See you then.